Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To my breakdown, I hope I didn't scare you. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Decibel Geek Podcast, and or should I say, welcome to our nightmare. Welcome. This is going to be fun today. I'm excited. I'm Chris Sinzak. He's Aaron Camaro. We're your host. Indeed. We've got an exciting interview today. Uh, we got to recently talk to Dick Wagner, and if you if you you may not know Dick Wagner by name, but you sure as hell know his work. Yeah, Dick Wagner is a killer guitar player, a rock and roller through and through. He's got an amazing story to tell. If you're a Kiss fan, if you're an Alice Cooper fan, if you're an Aerosmith fan, if you're a rock fan, and if you're a decibel geek like we are. <laughs> You're going to enjoy this today. Yeah, this this man has quite a bit of rock and roll history, and, we, and part of the reason we brought him on here is because um, Dick has recently put out uh, his own book, and right now it's an ebook. It's going to come out on hardcover in June, but uh, you can get it right now at Amazon. The book is called Not Only Women Bleed, which, as everyone probably knows, Only Women Bleed, one of the biggest songs Alice Cooper ever released, the first mm-hmm. song ever about domestic violence, covered by like 27 artists. It's oh, a, yeah. it's a major song, and um, but this this book. I, I checked out this book over the past week, and there's so many awesome stories relating to his Dick's career. There's 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 drug abuse. There's good times. There's bad times. There's there's all kinds of crazy sex stories. They're all. They're, I mean, there's an there's a, a huge amount of stuff in there. And like my favorite stories are the stuff where you've got different people in pop culture coming together to alice cooper was almost all-encompassing for this time right this goes way beyond just being a you know your typical rock autobiography yeah it's almost like a snapshot in time it is of the people the places the times the things that were going on in these different time periods be it the 70s 80s you know 90s and even what he's got going on today and like I said, we've both been really looking forward to this, to be able to sit down with Dick Wagner. And if you don't know who he is, like Chris said, you've, you, <laughs> you know who he is. You've heard his music, but now's a chance to really meet the real Dick Wagner. Yeah, and before we get to it, I want to thank Mitch LaFon from Brave Words, friend of the show. He's the one that helped hook this uh, interview up. Mitch has known Dick for a number of years. Um, Dick lives in Arizona now. 
had lots of great stories, was kind enough to give us some of his time. Uh, before we get started, just want to plug the website, dbgeekshow.blogspot.com. It's, you know it. It's doing wonderful. Got great writers. Uh, still looking for a couple more writers to come on staff if you're ever interested. And uh, I guess we'll go ahead and get to it. I don't think there's anything else to say. I think it's time to talk to Dick Wagner. Well, let's do it. Well, tell me what it was like being a 17-year-old playing in a band, and then all of a sudden you look over and you're backing up Jerry Lee Lewis. Wow. Well, the early years for me were, you know, a lot of work, man, learning how to play the guitar. You know, I started playing when I was maybe 16, 16 and a half years old, and uh, which is a little bit late, you know, to become really good. But, you know, I got into it. I loved it. I played it 10 hours a day. Then I put together a band. My first band was four guitar players. Oh, wow. You can imagine what that sounded like. Yeah. <laughs> you know, four 17-year-olds who couldn't really play yet. And, man, we were just banging it out, right? Uh-huh. And uh, finally I got the notion that, hey, you got to have a bass player and a drummer. So a couple of the guitar players went by the wayside, and I, and I got a drummer and a bass player. And then we had it made, you know. We were, we were playing, you know, small gigs. And there were some places around Michigan where you could, you know, leave town for a weekend and go play, which was really a thrill, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, then we were, we were doing this television show in uh, Detroit, and uh, the guy said, can you come back next week and back up Jerry Lee Lewis? And, of course, I've been listening to Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, on my record player. Back in those days, you had 45s, right? Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, um, sure, man, I would love to do that. So when got the Jerry Lee Lewis records and learned the songs and the band practiced, Jerry Lee Lewis comes to town, and we uh, go back on that same television show. And uh, we backed him up on TV Live. Wow. And he was favorably impressed. And I got to do my first rock and roll guitar solo. Nice. <laughs> Which was real nice. I mean, I don't have any idea what it sounds like, but <laughs> but I was I was thrilled, you know. And so he he asked us, you know, either through his manager or what, but he asked us if we would back him up on a couple gigs because he didn't have his band with him. So I said, sure, of course. And the first gig was Ortonville, Michigan, at the at a roller rink. So we the band we go up to Ortonville, Michigan. We're at the roller rink getting all set up. And then just waiting for Jerry Lee Lewis and waiting for Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> you know, the, the kids are, are coming into place. The place is getting filled up with kids. We go in, we play a few songs, and we're still waiting for Jerry Lee Lewis. And so we go out into the parking lot, and here comes this big green Cadillac, brand new Cadillac. just comes roaring up. Jerry Lee gets out of the back seat with a bottle of Jack Daniels in his hand and says, The killer has arrived. <laughs> a little fashionably late, even. <laughs> Fashionably late and just totally full of himself, but we went in and we played the show. We did a good job, and he he was sensational. And I learned a lot from that night. I learned about reaching out and um, reaching for your audience and bringing them into what you're doing. I mean, instead of just standing there like a dumbass and just playing songs, mm-hmm. you gotta you gotta bring some emotion to it. And so that was the beginning of learning how to present myself on stage and you know getting me ready for the future. Well, right. I suppose if you're talking about a performer that puts a lot of personality and, and emotion into what he was doing, you know, you gotta talk about Jerry Lee Lewis as far as somebody to be able to watch this guy and say, hey. 
you know, this is how you do it. You put some personality into it, and then you connect with your audience. Right, exactly. And you put on a show for them. You know, you, you, you have to entertain. I mean, it's not enough to be a, just a musician. You have to entertain in some way. And I'm I mean, going to captivate, captivate your audience. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that night was probably one of the the most responsible evenings that uh, kind of sealed it for you that this was what you wanted to do with the rest of your life, correct? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I kind of already knew that. You know, once you go down, like there's there was this place called the Greens Pavilion, and we used to play there on like on a weekend, and we'd be there for three nights. And you know, once you get down and you start playing music over a weekend, and now you're meeting the girls, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got the impetus to <laughs> to be there as many weekends as possible. And uh, I guess that sealed my fate, really. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> That'll do it every time. It's, all, it's always every about the chicks. Time, man. You know, all these girls, and, and you're getting some adulation, and you're just a young guy. And i got to say, it was, you know, it was thrilling. It was uh, a real eye-opener and, you know, just part of growing up. And so I kind of decided, I think that, the one time that I really decided that this was what I was going to do all my life was when I went out to a, a VFW club one night and there was a band playing there called the Eldorados. And uh, they were up on stage and, and they had these two gold top Les Pauls playing through these big uh, Gibson 400 amplifiers so they were loud and rock and roll. And when, that was the first time I'd heard a live band. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh my God. <laughs> and they were wearing these blue satin uh, smoking jackets. And I mean, they just look cool. And the guitars were fantastic. I always wanted a gold topless Paul. And it sounded to my ears just orgasmic. I mean, it was just great. Yeah. And that sealed my fate for sure that night. Playing with Jerry Lewis actually came, I think, at, you know, it's chronologically, it's hard to figure it all out. But um, they were all in the same period of time, more or less, you know. Yeah. Um, I got I got hooked on it, and that was it. Well, in in regards to your early days, from what I read on the book, and I'm not going to give away what the story is because this will be a good teaser to get some people to buy the book. If you want to hear a bizarre story, I will say, on behalf of all Nashvillians, we're not all like Frank Denny. <laughs> very funny, That's very very funny. No, I know I lived in Nashville. Like I said, I I mean I had a hard time in a sense because there was a resistance. Not maybe it was to me personally. Maybe it's maybe I don't know exactly, but. You mentioned the good old boy network mm-hmm. and that's true and there's a, a rule of thumb in nashville where you have to live there at least five years before they're going to let you in on sessions and all of that kind of stuff so mm. a lot of musicians move to nashville and they end up really just becoming sidemen for country artists going out on the road because it's so hard to get work in nashville mm-hmm. unless you're part of the you know the main clique of players maybe you were just too much of a rocker for them well, you know, I don't think so because, you know, a lot of the players who play in Nashville a lot, you know, uh, grew up on rock and roll. So you can hear it in their playing, especially the guitar players. Yeah. There's a weird kind of, uh, it's almost like a secret handshake type of society down here. I mean, it's, and it's been that way for a while. It has opened up a bit over the last few years, but the time when you were down here in the early 90s, it was really bad for that kind of thing. Yes, it was. Very, very difficult. Very yeah. difficult. But I love living in Nashville. I mean, it's a beautiful town and nice people. And, I, you know, I did meet a few guys that I could write with, write songs with. And mm-hmm. that's a little more open kind of thing. Well, and I suppose, you, you know, as you mentioned in the book, and you, you already know that, that Bob Ezrin now works out of here and uh, did the new Alice record there, and uh, you know, here in Nashville. Yes, he does. And I spoke to him not too long ago, and I asked him about Nashville, how he was doing in Nashville. He said it's a really tough city. And it's really hard to get work there. 
most of his work comes from out of town into Nashville when he records them. Wow. But as far as finding talent or having a big headway there in Nashville, he's he's experiencing the same thing to a certain degree. That is of course, Ezra, you know, he's more famous and he's bigger in the industry than I ever was, so he probably has more success than I had. Uh, it's crazy but he, that it's... But he did complain about, about it, too. It's sort of the same thing. It doesn't seem to, to end. Yeah, it's wild that somebody of, of his stature with his name would have any trouble yeah, getting no artists kidding. to come in. Well, you know, Al Cooper, you know, Al Cooper uh-huh. from Blood, Sweat, Tears, he warned me before I went to Nashville because I spoke to him just before I moved there. He said, don't expect to work here. Mm. What, are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, I've been playing sessions and doing records for years. He said, you can, there's no work here. You're going to have to go outside. Mm-hmm. So he warned me before. I guess uh, it affected everybody to some degree. Yeah, yeah. Well, but you wouldn't listen to him. No, I wouldn't. In fact, <laughs> I, had a, I had a girlfriend who had left me and she'd moved to Nashville, and I was determined to get her back. Wow. So part of my my reason going to Nashville was for her. That's always See, a woman. Once again, women <laughs> steering your oh fate for God. you out there. I huh? know, it's terrible, isn't it? It's terrible. Oh, <laughs> you, you should read the book. <laughs> you, you need to read the book, really. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a philosophical trip. It is. You you have yeah. you have lived a, a quite a life, sir, and uh, I, I, we definitely want to talk about some of it. I hope you don't mind me skipping ahead just a tad because um, you handle it any way you want. All right, you know, you know, sweet. Okay? Well, I want to talk about some of the stories that that really got me. One of the one of my favorite things from the book was, uh, I think it was right when you first met Alice. Um, you noticed his kind of unorthodox workout routine where he would drink a beer and then do twenty five sit ups. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I gotta imagine for Alice Cooper, that's a lot of sit-ups at that time. Well, he he was doing them all day long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was doing them all day long. I mean, Alice in in the peak of his alcoholism. I mean, he used to. I stayed at his house a few times, and I come out in the morning, and he was still sitting in front of the TV. I don't think he ever went to bed. He just fell asleep in the chair, uh-huh. and uh, he wake up in the morning. The first thing he would do is pour himself a big, uh, like ten ounce tumbler of whiskey Oof. and he started drinking the whiskey and then he'd shift over to beer and then he'd drink beer all day long until you know into the into the evening he might start sipping whiskey again but oh wow it, it was it was pathetic i mean uh, i loved alice he's a great guy um i was i was very frightened for him in the sense that the amount he was drinking what was the peak years for for that that era for him was it the early 80s Geez, let me think for a second because i you know to me, it was decades. Well, I know you guys did the Da Da album, and then he took quite a long break after that. I didn't know if that was during the period that he hit the rock, hit rock yeah, bottom. He had he had gone into rehab for alcoholism, mm-hmm. um, probably around 1979. Okay, mm-hmm. then he came back out, and then the Da Da album we did in 1983. I think. Yeah. So he had gotten free of alcohol, and then he got into drug abuse. And then he and I went to Toronto, we made the Dada album, and we were doing nothing but drinking all the time there. Mm. Um, so he got back into his alcoholism, and after Dada, I think he went back into rehab, and, uh, and he's been clean ever since. Yeah, we didn't hear from him for a few years there. It's amazing how on the level and clean he is now, I mean, because it's like, and I was talking to Aaron before we talk, we got on the phone with you, um, one thing, when you think back into this period of time, um, a lot of people here, a lot of general hard rock and metal fans, they know of Alice Cooper more from 
if it's the older stuff, they know School's Out, they know 18, and then the newer stuff, they know, you know, Poison and those yeah. songs that are more of the, like, the straight-ahead three-chord type rock rock numbers, but right. what what I think is amazing is the stuff that you did when you were with him, because there was so much experimentation going on, and, like, a lot of people try to put Alice Cooper and Kiss in the same ballpark, and I'm like, aside from makeup, especially during the era you were with him, they're, they're, theatrics. they theatrics. Yeah, and theatrics, they, but musically, they couldn't have been any different, I don't think. No, you're right about the music situation. It's, it's, it is actually because I got involved with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, my writing is, you know, just a, a different animal than the three chord metal stuff right i mean i could write a, a rock riff you know pretty i was pretty good at it too mm-hmm. but i never really got into the really thrash or really heavy metal stuff right. but the musicality yeah, but, of what you brought to the table was it's 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 pretty stunning i mean because if, if you listen to any other the any of the a lot of the rock and roll stuff from around that time there was really nothing like what you guys were doing i mean it was it was right. it was nothing very like unique you're right you're right and i'm glad you noticed that um but, but I've always believed in the song, you know. Since I first started writing songs, I realized that the song is the most important part of the whole thing, the whole package. Right. You, you can have different singers, you can have different bands playing, but if you don't have the song, you don't have a song, then you've got nothing. That's, so true. That's true. I've always believed in, you know, the essence of what hit music is or what popular music is, is based on songs. I tried to become a really good songwriter. I think I've done pretty well with it, but... Um, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. So I applied it. You know, I applied it in every case, whether I was doing a country record for somebody or whether I was doing an Alice Cooper record or whatever. You know, I'd, I'd bring songs in. No, I don't want to hear that Nickelback song again. Really? This is a Decibel Geek Podcast. Hi, this is Rick Allen's Left Arm. You're listening to the Decibel Geek Podcast. I mean, you definitely can. You can tell the difference before and after that you became involved. And you've been involved with a lot of different bands from Kiss and uh, Aerosmith. I mean, you worked on the song Train Kept a Rolling, is that correct? That's correct. Now, how did that work? Yeah. I mean, the story that I've heard was that, you know, you guys were never credited on the album for, for playing on that, but that Steven Tyler actually wanted you guys to do it. I mean, how, how did that all play out? I was sitting in my apartment in the Plaza Hotel in New York City. I, had a, I was living high in the hog there for a while. And I got a call from Jack Douglas um, to come over and play some guitar on an Aerosmith album. And so I just got my guitar and went down to the studio. It was like 10 o'clock at night. And they laid down tracks. They had tracks, you know, with rough vocals or, or maybe they didn't even have vocals yet. I don't remember for sure. But it was like, okay, this is where we want you to play in this section. And uh, then you just get a sound, get your sound. And... Uh, you know, play and just let it go and uh, happened to come up with some stuff that was uh, they really loved and they weren't able to actually play it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Joe Perry and Brad Woodford are, you know, they're good guys, they're good guitar players, really good, especially now they've really gotten great. But at that time, they just weren't capable of playing on the level that me and Steve Hunter 
we were the two guys who did these records most of the time. Mm-hmm. They couldn't play on that level exactly, so we'd be called in. You know, like gunslingers, we'd be we'd be called in to do something that had to, that the guys in the band really actually couldn't do. Right. And you know, the producer's sitting there, and he's going, "Oh, I imagine this," and when he imagined something, and the band can't play it, it's frustrating. You know? Right, I'm sure. So he, so they called me in this particular night, and. Uh, I played what I played, and I played on like four songs on that album. You know, the rest is history. Right. I mean, they did not credit me or Steve. It's okay. I mean, they, <clears throat> they were trying to keep a mystique about them at the time. Right. Uh, you know, and so you can't blame them in a way. I mean, it's kind of petty, but in the end, uh, I went to see Aerosmith, and I, I took my sons down to a, a concert of Aerosmith at the San Antonio Convention Center. And I was backstage saying hello to the guys, and Steven Tyler goes over in front of all these people and puts his arm around me and says, this is a guy that sold us three million records. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, it was like the first time that they had ever admitted that you know, I had something to do with it, and it was very, of course, in front of my sons. Uh-huh. Yeah, that must you know, have been very cool. Very special that way. So. I've always held a, a soft spot for Steven Tyler in my in my heart uh, because that was such a nice thing to do. He didn't have to do it. I mean, it was already non-credited for years. Right. And, you know, what was I going to do? Stand on the rooftops and shout, I played that solo. <laughs> right. Some people you know, would. You don't, you, never do, know. you don't do that. I just let it go. So yeah. as a gunslinger, a guy with that has a guitar and will travel, when you show up at a studio, for example, like this, you know, is there bad feelings from the guitar players that are already there that can't cut it at the moment, you know, that they bring you in? You know, do these guys look at you like, you know, who's this asshole and what are you doing here and why are you trying to play my solo? I mean, I got to imagine sometimes there's probably bad feelings like that. I mean, was that the case here? Well, you know something? I don't know. I mean, when I arrived at 10 o'clock at night at the record plant, to do the solos, they weren't there, mm-hmm. the guys in the band. Mm-hmm. Same when I played on Kiss. Yeah. Um, were they know, were they at the card game with Ace Frehley? <laughs> Ace Frehley wasn't there. Yeah. He's the one, but I did hear that Ace Frehley is the one who really bitched and complained mm-hmm. and told them they dare not credit me for the stuff that I did. Right. Um, and they did, if I get a spot where I can play and, it, and I do a good job, I mean, that's what I'm supposed to do, right? Right. So, so I go in and I play the best that I can play and be as inventive as I can be and try to, you know, fit into and flow with the song. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to go in there and put something in there that looks like a, you know, a, a big red stripe through a, you know, a classical painting. Right. You want to go in and do something that, that fits exactly what they're trying to do. Yeah, and that solo on Sweet Pain definitely fit because for years I... I didn't know it was an ace. I mean, it yeah, sounded same. enough like him, uh, but but at the same time, once I found out it was you, I could it was like, well, I can definitely hear a different feel in that. And I will say, in fairness to Ace, I have heard him quote saying it wasn't. I don't know necessarily that he was angry at you. I think he was more angry at. Paul, Gene, and Bob for not telling him until the album was already out or something. Well, that may be. I mean, I don't know, because I just went in and did my, my thing, and I didn't know anything about Ace Frehley, why he wasn't there, why he wasn't doing it. Right. You know, they hired me to do something, and I came in and did it. And so it wasn't like I, you know, conned my way into 
you know, cutting Ace Frilly out of the deal. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, anything like that, it was like they just hired me to come in and uh, and play. Right. And that's what and a hired gun does. Did, so I did. And if Ace didn't like it, well, that's okay. You know, I wouldn't like it if it were my band. Yeah. Uh, well, how you does... Know, so I don't blame him in a sense, but... Yeah. You know, he should have been more on top of it so that I wasn't needed. That's and, it. Well, and how does that relate to uh, your appearance on Kiss's Revenge album when you did? I think it was the Every Time I Look at You solo. Did um, right. What 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 was the uh, circumstances that led you to that instead of Bruce Kulick playing that solo? Well, we were playing. I was doing some uh, cutting some demos at track. I think it was Track Studio in Studio B, and Kiss had come in to Studio A. And Paul Stanley came over and was listening to, listening to the stuff that I was doing. And he said, hey, I got a song that I want you to play on. And so I just went over to the other studio and played it. Mm-hmm. You know? Paul and I got, got to be friends, and we used to hang out a bit, and we even tried to do some writing together. We, we, there was never enough time, and Paul was so busy all that time. Mm-hmm. It was very hard for us to sit down and really actually come up with songs and demos, but we uh, but we did spend a lot of time together, and uh, so he, when he knew I was in the studio, he came over to say hello to me, and, and it just happened that way. Mm-hmm. You know, Bruce Kulig, I, you know, he wasn't there. I don't know why he wasn't there. It isn't like I did it because he couldn't. Right. It was because of the circumstance. I was there, and he wasn't, mm-hmm. and Paul asked me. Yeah. I think maybe it was kind of like, uh, for old time's sake, let's right. go play one together? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. You know, maybe that, that could be part of it, because we were friends. Oh, that and working and with course, Bob. Ezra was there, and he's my friend, and so it just worked, you know. Yeah. Well, speaking of Kiss, uh, I was going to ask you, like I'd mentioned earlier, how how different the musical musical types of sounds that you guys and Kiss had in the 70s. What was um, Alice and you, and, and, and even your opinion of Kiss at that era when they were blowing up? Did Was Alice happy for them, or did did it, was he not, was he thinking, oh, these guys are ripping me off? Well, I would say there's a little bit of that. Really? That's yeah, what you got to look bit, at it as competition, you know, I mean, too. I think Alice kind of had the, had the market, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he was the innovator. He's the one that, that made it happen. And all of a sudden, this band is doing the same kind of makeup kind of idea, mm-hmm. and and just going way over the top with it, and becoming even bigger than he was. And I don't, I don't think he liked it in particular. I don't think he held any resentment or mm-hmm. anything afterward. But I'm sure during that time, it was affecting him to a certain degree. Right. Have you heard the story about when uh, it was? Bef- I think it was before you joined the band. It was when Kiss was first starting out, and. Um, Alice was there for their first show, and after the show, uh, Alice looked at Gene and said, "What you guys need is a gimmick." <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Alice Cooper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's exactly his kind of humor. But yeah, I was going to mention that you know, Kiss definitely has not hidden their uh, their admiration for Alice because I know that a big moment for them coming up with the makeup idea was they went and saw Alice's band play at Madison Square Garden and. After the show, they were like, well, what would it be like if we were four Alice Coopers? So 
I mean, they, they definitely got. That. Oh yeah, they 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 uh, like two of them. I think it was uh, Ace and and Paul ran right to the front of the stage. They were just enamored with what Alice was doing, and uh, took their influence heavily from him. Great. Yeah. Well, that's right. Rightfully so. You know? Yeah. We went one night to Madison Square Garden, the four of us, and Alice Cooper was performing. Paul and Ace on it ran all the way down to the front to just stare at him. We were kind of like kneeling down, trying to, you know, get as close as we could. And I remember watching the show, and it, we, we were just blown away. And that's what probed the idea of what if we had four Alice Coopers, but different types of makeup? Well, sure, everything comes from somewhere. Yeah, and Alice Cooper was definitely the innovator. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he really created, you know, the, the theatrics in rock the way that we see it today. It doesn't matter, you know, how many, you know, doll heads you chop off or how many snakes you have on stage or how high high you can blow the fire or spit the blood. Like you said earlier, it comes down to the song, you know, and all these things don't really matter if you don't have the song. This, this I, I, I definitely agree with you, and I think that that's really the truth. You have to have songs. If you don't have songs, what are people going to remember? Mm-hmm. I mean, they will remember the show, but that's a, a fleeting memory. Right. You know the songs remain. Well, sh- there. speaking of the show, at the time, did you ever? Did you? Because I know I'm sure you were into the theatrics, especially you know working with Lou Reed before before Alice. Um, did you? Did it ever get to the point where you're like, well, why are we doing so much show stuff? Why aren't we focusing more on music? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Because my bands early on, like the Boss Men, mm-hmm. we did a lot of different kind of theatrical things. We weren't like Alice, but we did all these skits and play acting stuff it was i was always into theatrics so it felt natural to me putting an end to ugly rumors gene simmons does not have a cow's tongue you're listening to the decibel geek podcast listen to the decibel geek podcast on your iphone android phone blackberry and WebOS phones with stitcher Stitcher's Smart Radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at Stitcher.com. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. I don't want to share too much from the book because I want people to buy the book, but um, one of the, the, probably my favorite story in the book, if you could just share a quick summation of it, was the story about um, you guys with Alice's band staying at the, uh, the Riot House or the Continental Hyatt House. And um uh, and yeah. the and the two limos. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, well, um, I went down one night from my hotel room at the Continental Hyatt House in L.A. to go out somewhere. I walked out the front door, and there's these two limousines parked in front, and the, the one in the back was trying to get out and get around the other one, and it was too. They were parked too close, and. Uh, so the guy, some of the guys in the limo in the back get out and start mouthing off at the uh, limousine driver in front. And uh, it was Robert Plant who was <laughs> mouthing off mainly. You know, Led Zeppelin, okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Zeppelin, Zeppelin's in the rear limousine. And, and the limousine driver, as cool as hell, says, just talk to my boss. <laughs> and he pointed over at the doorway, and coming out of the front door was George Foreman. And this was when... The champion, champion of the world. Yeah, I don't see any of the guys from Zeppelin lipping off to uh, old George no. Foreman. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and uh, so they kind of cooled their heels and, and got out of there without any kind of confrontation. But George Foreman was ready to... Well, he'd have torn their imagined, heads off. I imagine he was ready to pop him in the mouth. But 
Yeah. Of course, he's a professional boxer. He wouldn't do that. Right. Yeah. But this was before. It's inter- interesting to see the confrontation between the, the heavyweight champion of the world and you know the, the biggest rock and roll band. <laughs> wow. It's just, it's such a crossroads <laughs> of very pop funny, culture. Yeah. yeah, I love that story. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> And then, yeah, it was great. It was quite. I was just standing there watching this go down. I'm going, this is funny. Yeah, well, and one welcome of, to L.A. One of the uh, things, right. that, one of the things you do in the book that that's when I what I love the most is it's it's quite a snapshot of pop culture from the, the that period because, like the other story about um, when uh, you guys wrote the song "How You Gonna See Me Now" on the From the Inside album, you've got. Bernie Taupin writing the lyrics with Alice, and then you writing the music, and then Toto coming in to cut the track, and then the track is produced by David Foster, and it's just like that's yeah. that is the strangest combination of people I've ever heard of for one song. Well, it was a strange combination in that sense, but you know, I mean, they're all this is great players and great musicians and great musical minds all you know gelling together there, and it really worked out. I, I was. I didn't know David Foster that well, mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure if his arrangement was going to, um, I mean, his production was going to be as good as, let's say, what Bob Ezrin had done. Right. And in the end, it had its own charm and its own, it became a hit, so yeah. what can you say? I mean, it was great. And the guys in Toto, Steve Lukather and I were in there playing guitars together, I loved that, that was fun. Yeah, he's just a monster but, on guitar. Oh, well, he's a great guitar player, yeah. and... Uh, and as a band, Toto was like, you know, as tight as you could possibly be. Mm-hmm. So they were a great studio band, you know, on their own, but also for doing sessions for other people. Right. Well, that's a funny thing about that, though, is on the surface of that, you wouldn't think of, you know, the Alice Cooper band and Toto, you know, on the surface, not knowing nothing about their studio music musicianship or anything, wouldn't have anything to do with each other. It, it just seems weird. But, but nothing at all, right? <laughs> nothing at all. Well, that was David. That was David Foster. I mean, Toto were they were his friends, not Alice's. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And David was the producer, so he had the right to you know at least set it up. And Alice happened to love it. And Bernie Taupin, and he had become friends before I came to L.A. and to do this album. And I got to L.A. I went to Alice's house as usual. Mm-hmm. And got introduced to Bernie Taupin, who was, you know, like, I, I idolized him. I thought he was such a great lyricist. So here I'm standing there with Alice Cooper and Bernie Taupin, two of the best lyricists in the whole business. Wow. And they hand me sheets of paper and say, here, we want you to write the music. Here are the lyrics. We've already written them. Nice. <laughs> now, that's got to be kind of a tall me, order. The first song they handed me was, How Are You Gonna See Me Now, which was the most natural flow lyric. And I, I wrote the song in about 20 minutes. And... That's it. You know, just one of those things that just flows from you. I think you must have just a great ear for music to be able to come in, to be called into a studio, and they say, here's the song, you know, lay your part to it. And, like, for example, with Sweet Pain from Kiss, you know, to come in and, I mean, was that the first time you'd ever heard the song, and then you got just a little bit of time oh, to yeah. fit it in? Yeah. And the then, you know, so that says a lot about your ear for music, too, to be able to hear this song and say, here's what fits. You know, and like you say, you don't put the big red stripe across the, the beautiful portrait, but you make it so it, it's, it just, it's like Chris seamless. said, you, you don't, yeah, it's seamless. You don't know it's not Ace Frehley, but yet it's, it sounds like a Kiss song, you know, and so that's a hell of a talent right there. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I like to, I mean, I try to in, in any situation. Uh, my first rule is learn the song, know the song. Mm-hmm. I mean, so as soon as they started playing it for me, I just, you know, grasped it because I, 
I understand how chord progressions work naturally. And so I can kind of feel what the song is and where it's going. And then listening to those basic tracks, you know, you, you get ideas. And all you have to do is commit those ideas to mind and work them out on the guitar and play it. And if you've got the touch, you know, it takes a certain touch to play those soaring kind of leads, you mm-hmm. know. Well, and I gotta, I gotta just say, after after really looking through, uh, I took a pretty good look through the book over this past week. I, I'm still reading parts of it, but uh, what I've noticed though is it's just like if I try to put myself in your shoes. I mean, it it must have been almost uh, quite a thing to look back at in hindsight when you finished this book, looking back on all of this stuff to uh, you know see where you how you know how far you went. And I mean, it's it's quite an amazing life. I mean, you you've honestly lived like the life of what ten men could even hope to live. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. You have, I mean, um, it, the, the, no, no. Yeah. I, after I read the book and it was finished, finally, you know, and uh, I thought it was really good. I mean, I thought that the stories were told with enough humor so that it wasn't a, a serious uh, self help book, or you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, it gets into a lot of psychological things, and especially about drug addiction and everything. But I tried to, to lend the humor of the moment to it, you know, when I could, and mm-hmm. you know, to take the edge off a little bit and make it uh, readable by pretty much anybody. It's an e-book. It's coming out in hardcover, though. Oh, okay. Well, it's coming out in June in hardcover, and I'm also including uh, two CDs in the book. I'm having it manufactured that way uh, as a bonus, you know, so that I, I, it's a way for me to put some of my music out there also at the same time. Is it unreleased and stuff? It's it's uh, my record, Full Meltdown. The, the last record I released was called Full Meltdown. Oh, okay. And it, it's uh, tracks that I discovered. Well, it's kind of a story in itself. Um, I got a call from somebody at Rhino Records, and they told me they, they had a tape of like eight or nine of my songs and they were going to release it on this uh, Wounded Bird label. And they sent me a copy of the stuff, and I listened to it, and I remembered that I had recorded these songs, written them and recorded them in 1979, up in Massachusetts at a place called Longview Farm. It's a, a farm, but it was also a recording studio, right? I owned these tapes, and I had forgotten about them. Wow. I so this would be the first time you'd heard got, it in a long time? Somehow Atlantic Records got them, and Atlantic Records, you know, gave them over to Rhino Records. And just by chance, this guy called me, and I said, no, no, you can't release that. Uh, they're mine. They belong to me. Right. And and so I want them back, and I'm going to release them myself, <laughs> which is what I did. Um, Good. So I'm going to take that CD, which uh, I think is a great rock and roll CD, and put it in my book, put it inside the book. So when you buy the book, hardcover, you also get a couple of CDs in there. So it's music and, uh, and my stories at the same time, and maybe that's my legacy, and that's it. You know, I think that's a great way to do it. That book. Yeah, definitely want to... I'm going to be selling it. I'm going to be selling the book, not only on the Internet and stuff, but I'm going to be selling it at my merchandise table. I'm going to go out on tour this summer and in the fall, and I'll be selling my book and playing my music, and, hey, life couldn't be any better. That sounds pretty sweet. I, when you're out playing on tour, like now, like now, you know, when you're all playing shows, what kind of fans are you getting showing up? Are you getting Kiss fans? Are you getting Alice Cooper fans? All of the above, your solo stuff. Who's showing up at your shows? Oh man, it's 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 a cross section. I mean, it is Alice Cooper fans and it is Kiss fans. It's anything that I've done. They're my fans. Mm-hmm. You know, my 
my audiences so far since I'm going going back out on the road, you know, they're just like they're there to see me. They they come with armfuls of albums, you know, for me to autograph. And, well, I bet you're on just about everything. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just crazy. You know, people will bring ten albums. Wow. Want me to sign every one of them? You know, it'll be a Kiss and a couple of Alice Cooper and. A, this and that, you know, my discography, you can look it up on my website, and you can see how many albums I have played on. It's wagnermusic.com, by the way. And is that the best place to go to, to pick up the book until it comes out on hardcover? Um, actually, the best place probably to get the book is amazon.com. Okay. okay. So when is the book available, then, with the CDs and the music and everything? That's what I want to know. Well, it's in production right now. It's going to be available in June. Excellent. Um, right now, the date is June 25th. Um, I don't know if that'll be off by a few days, but um, June 25th will be the official hardcover plus bonus CDs release of my book if you're into the kendall thing and you're on to into reading books online definitely want to go to amazon and get this book it's a it's an excellent read um the rest of us well we're just gonna have to hold out till june and uh you know even if you do get it on the kendall and read it on as an ebook you want to hang out you want to get the hard copy version because if you're like me you like to have that book in your hand and have that music music. also you know so definitely be watching for that um, you're going to have updates and everything and, and on that I on your will, website? I will say this, too. Anybody who buys the hardcover book in June with a request, if they request it, I will personalize a signed book for them. So Awesome. Um, nice. Even, even if it's by us, them buying it from me and I send it to them personally autographed. I mean, I want I want it to be special in some way to everyone who buys it, you know, aside from just reading it. Right. Well, that sounds like a great package, Dick. Yeah. And, and uh, we will definitely, we're going to promote it here on the e-version, and we're also going to, we'll promote it in June when it comes out, if you like, and uh, try to get the word out for you. Heck yeah, we You're will. You're good men. I appreciate you guys. I really do. I thank you very much. Oh, no problem at all. And if, if you ever might want to come back to Nashville sometime, uh, look us up, and we'll have you on again. Okay, we'll do that. Heck yeah, we we'll don't do we that. don't have a five-year waiting list. You can hang out with us anytime. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, it's been pretty sweet, informative, and rocking to be able to hang out and talk to Dick Wagner today. So many great stories. And like I said, if you really want to delve into this, and I, I highly recommend you do, check out Dick Wagner's book, Not Only Women Bleed. I mean, it's it's so much more than just a rock and roll cautionary tale. You know, it's the highs, the lows, the women, the booze, the drugs, the, all that stuff. The yeah. filling in for Ace Frehley, filling in for Joe Perry. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's just through and through. It's an amazing book. And like I said, if you're like me, you, you want the hard copy with the music that's coming up in June. You know, we're going to keep you updated on that. Mm-hmm. Um, Dick Wagner's website. What was it one more time? Wagnermusic.com. That's it. So keep checking in with him uh, with him at that website. Keep checking in with us here at the mm-hmm. Decibel Geek podcast you know it's of course you know the website there um we say it every single time one more time what the hell www.dbgeekshow.blogspot.com jinx yeah thanks for that (laughs) um we we've got so much stuff coming up i mean this has been a real treat today to sit down with dick wagner now now we're gonna have some real fun because we've got some great stuff lined up for the next we couple do. of weeks and we even have more uh interviews coming on the way too yeah we're, we're kind of planning ahead and we're doing it for you guys so we, we, we may hope have, you like it we may have to hire a publicist we're pretty soon we're gonna have to i mean seriously we got people coming to us wanting actually actually wanting to do have us interview them yeah. you know which is kind of a trip for us you know which is cool but you know at the same time 
You know, everyone says, hey, you know, how about next week? Well, you know, we've got this guy next week, and we've got that plan for next week. What about the week after that? Yeah. Well, we've kind of got this that week and this that week. So if you're you're on our list and you've been talking to us, you know, we're not trying to be jerks. We're not trying to put you off. We're just trying to fit everything in yeah. and give everybody their proper due and their proper time. So I guess we're good for today, right? Yeah, it's too much sometimes, but yeah, we're going <laughs> to wrap it up today. Um and prepare for next week. Yeah, we will see you folks next week, and have a good one. Remember to check us out at dbgeekshow.blogspot.com, facebook.com slash decibelgeek, and twitter at decibelgeekpod. Also available for free on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.